This is the word of the Lord from Daniel 2.20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Amen. Thank you, Aaron Lynn. Uh, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to have favorite church members, but I do. So it's, it's her, if anybody was wondering. Uh, if you're new, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors. Oh, yeah, and I'm married to her. That's why she's my favorite. If you're new, you might not have known that. We're going through the book of Daniel together as a church family. I'm really glad that you're here. I know it's Labor Day weekend. A lot of people <clears throat> might go camping on Labor Day weekend, but you are the smart ones who knew that all the campgrounds and the roads would be too full today. And so you're here at church. And uh, we're going to look at a, maybe if you've been in, in church for a while, maybe you're familiar with this story, this story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, there's some new things I hope to be able to share with you today as we look at this passage, but I want to remind all of you that this book of Daniel is written to the people of Israel, about the people of Israel, during the time of their exile. So the people of Israel at one point lived in the promised land, but they were unfaithful to the covenant. They were rebellious against God, and God made good on his warnings and removed them from the promised land. And so the question of the book of Daniel is, how do we learn how to live faithfully as exiles, when we're not yet uh, back restored to our final home. And Jesus' disciple Peter, when he writes the letter of 1 Peter, he calls us, as followers of Jesus, he calls us exiles, that we are people who don't yet live in our final home. How many of you have ever looked around at the world and thought, things just don't seem the way that they ought to be? Anybody? And so the question for us as followers of Jesus is how do we live lives of faithfulness to Jesus even while we await the return of Jesus, our final home, and for the world to be restored, uh, the new heavens and the new earth uh, that that Jesus has promised to us. So that's the big question of the series. And today we're going to look at this theme of wisdom and power. And before we do, would you just join with me in prayer? Because uh, I want God's wisdom to shine through and I want us all to experience his power in this time through his word. So will you join with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a good God who speaks and communicates directly to us. And God, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer. We thank you that we can come to you in your word and that you delight in giving us wisdom. And that God, at times in life when we feel powerless, it's, it's not our own wisdom we can rely on, it's yours. God, I pray that you would guard my lips and, and, and direct my tongue and, and my words, that everything I say would be truthful according to your word and helpful to build us up as we seek to live lives of faithfulness to Jesus. And God, would you give all of us soft and teachable hearts, hearts that trust in you and your wisdom more than we rely upon our own wisdom. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Are you guys familiar with the phrase, knowledge is power? Have you ever heard that before? kind of a cliche, a saying that goes around. It's actually hard to know where it originates from. You can find a version of it or something really similar, even all the way back in antiquity, like in ancient Greece. But this idea of knowledge is power. Now, how many of you like the feeling of being powerless? Anybody? How many of you like it when your world is chaos, your home is out of control, your relationships, your work, politics? How many of you love it when you just feel like politics are crazy, right? Anybody? No? We like that feeling of power. We like that feeling of control. We like that feeling of safety. But how we go about getting that feeling most often is through the acquisition of knowledge. If I could just learn, if I could read more, if I could understand more, it would give me a sense of safety and security in this powerless feeling that I'm experiencing. It might not change the craziness of the world, but if I just had enough knowledge and power, it would help me deal with the craziness of the world. You guys know what I'm talking about? I'll give you three quick examples. Number one, football season is upon us. Anybody excited for football season? All right, a couple of you, good. Hope you're more excited if you go to a football game. But you know, the, there's a ton of uh, blogs and videos and social media posts coming out from so-called football experts telling you, you know, the, the 
Falcons are going to be 10 and 6 this year, and the Seahawks are going to be 11 and 5 this year, and the Cleveland Browns are going to be undefeated and win the Super Bowl this year. And everyone's making, yeah, right, I know, right? <laughs> hey, we serve a, cre- a God who's supernatural and miraculous. But the idea is all these predictions are coming out. And if you just had enough knowledge, if you just had enough information that you could manage your emotions around this football season. Because I know some of y'all are sinful with your emotions during football season. But if you go in with lower expectations, like a minute, or, if, or hey, the team's supposed to be good and people are in there and they're analyzing and they're running you know, statistics and probability. I could, I could navigate this crazy world of the football season. Okay, that's a simple, silly example. I had a conversation with someone recently who is a bit of a self-professed health nut. I'm a health nut, they read blogs, they read books, they avoid certain additives, they take certain supplements. It's like health is such a, a crazy thing and oftentimes we feel powerless about our own health and why do I have this injury? Why do I have this sickness? But if I could just read all the books and listen to all the podcasts and eat all the right things and avoid all the bad things, I might not be able to fix everything, but at least I'll have some semblance of power and control over my body and over my life. You guys tracking with me? One more example, just because I know you love this one so much. It's election season, again. Does it feel like it's always election season anymore in America? But we're about to fully enter into the, the next presidential race, and I'm seeing predictions coming out. It's like, well, if the Democrat Party runs this candidate, there's a you know, 44% chance that they will lose and, and President Trump will be reelected. But if they run this candidate, you know, surveys show that this person, and like everyone's trying to make guesses. Everyone's trying to put out information. Everyone's trying to gain knowledge so that you can acquire some power over the insanity that has become American politics. If I leave anybody out, I could keep going. But The point being, we use different information to try to help us feel like we've got some sense of what is going on in the world. Now, that's our world. The world of the people during the time of Daniel is very different. This is the world of the ancient Near East. This is before the Roman Empire. This is before the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great conquered everybody. This is the world of the ancient Near East. And in the ancient Near East, they didn't think like we do. There was no sacred and secular divide. There was no, well, this is math and science and this is religion and superstition over here. It all kind of blurred together. And they would look at the world and they would look at all the creation and all the things that happened in the world. And it was, it was filled with meaning. It was filled with significance. How am I going to acquire knowledge? Actually, even take it a step beyond knowledge. How am I going to acquire wisdom? That's the word that the Bible uses often too. It's like knowledge, but knowing what to do with it is wisdom. So how do I acquire knowledge? How do I acquire wisdom? How do I live in this this crazy world? Well, the people of the ancient Near East would use something that we would call divination. So they would look at, let's say, the stars, we're out camping recently, get away from the city lights, and just looking up at the stars. I love Jupiter. It is my second favorite planet behind Earth because it's where I live. But it would come out really bright and red every night and the stars. And we could see the, the, the Big Dipper and could see, uh, you know, Orion and just the different, uh, uh, what do you call them, constellations. The ancients would look at that and they would see if the stars move a certain way, well, that means a certain thing about this kingdom is going to be conquered by this kingdom. Or if uh, an animal was born with an unusual birthmark, they would say, oh, that's a bad omen. That means the harvest is going to be bad. Or, or we read tea leaves or we read different things. They, I, I learned about two this week that I didn't know about before. The pouring of oil onto water. Have you ever heard of that? Pour oil on water and the oil, you know how oil and water don't mix and it, and it goes out and makes a shape and oh, the oil is this shape. That means fishing season's going to be terrible or whatever. My personal favorite one though is animal livers. The reading of animal livers. You sacrifice an animal to whatever deity. You pull out its liver. I don't know why not its heart or any other organ, but you plop its liver down on the table and say, well, that liver is shaped like Connecticut. So that means you're going to get pregnant this year or whatever. Like it's just... Now we look at those things with our 21st century eyes and think, what a bunch of weirdos reading livers. But is it really that much weirder than ESPN analysts talking to us about men in spandex throwing around a dead pigskin? It's not that much weirder, okay? I mean, should the Lord tarry and historians look back on us a few hundred years from now, they're like, what is the deal with this football divination? Now, 
That's what the rest of the world did. That's what all of the peoples of the ancient Near East did. But when God called one family to himself, the family of Abraham, the the people of Israel, when God called them to himself, he says, hey, I'm going to set you apart because I want you to do things a little bit differently. You can actually read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. There's a list where God says, no, you're not going to do astrology. You're not going to read omens and signs. You're not going to practice divination. You're not going to consult dead spirits. God has consistently given this message to his people. He goes, I'm a different type of God. I want you to be a different type of people. And actually, we can read this list of prohibitions. It's in verses 9 through 14. But part of what we often miss is the very next set of verses, God says, I don't want you to do divination because I'm going to communicate directly to you through my prophets. God gives this promise. It's, it's coming from Moses. It's Moses communicating the word of God. And Moses said, God will raise up another prophet like me from among the brothers. It is to him you must listen. And we see in that a promise that God will always provide prophets to speak to Israel. But actually in John chapter six, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, the people stand up and go, it's the prophet that Moses promised. So we see in this promise that a little glimpse of Jesus. But the point is that God is not the kind of God who's going to communicate through tea leaves and lines on your hand and vague things like animal livers, God is going to communicate to his people directly through his prophetic word. Is that encouraging to anybody here today? That our God is a communicative God and he delights in speaking clearly to his people. Now, that's the people of Israel. They're distinct from the ancient Near East. They they hear from their God differently than the nations hear from their God. There is one area, however where ancient Israel overlaps with the rest of the ancient Near East. And it's in the area of dream interpretation. The nations would practice dream interpretation. In fact, uh, I came across one little bit of information that in archaeology, someone, uh, maybe about a decade ago, they dug up something that was like 100 pages of dream interpretation manuals for the ancient Babylonians. That ancient Babylon had like literally hundreds of pages of if someone dreams about a bear, it means that they want to conquer you. And if someone dreams about whatever, like move over Carl Jung, like this is significant dream interpretation training. Now in the Bible, there is no such uh, grid that is given. Well, if you dream this, it means this. But God does on occasion communicate to his people through dreams. Can You can think of, you know, God communicating to Abraham in a dream, God communicating to Jacob in a dream, but there's one person way back in the book of Genesis who really rises to the surface if you think about dreams and dream interpretation. Do you know who that is? Joseph. Check this out. If you're familiar with the story of Daniel, what I'm about to tell, and you're familiar with the story of of Joseph, think about these things. Once upon a time, there was a handsome young man who is a dreamer and an interpreter of dreams, who is taken against his will to a foreign land where he is tempted by pleasure, king's table, Potiphar's wife. He is given a foreign name by his captors, Belteshazzar or Zapanath Pania. He eventually is given favor from the captain of the guard, He interprets a troubling dream for the king. He outperforms the local diviners and the wise men. He is elevated to the second in command and eventually brings salvation not only to his own people, but to all of the people, the locals around him. Who am I talking about? Yeah, thank you, Sound City. I had not realized until this last week just how much overlay there is between the Joseph and the Daniel story. And and I thought about this. This This is just me thinking out loud, so take it for what it's worth. It seems really interesting to me that on either end of the people of Israel living in the land, there is God speaking through a dream interpreter. Joseph, before the people go into the land of of Israel, and then Daniel, after the people have been removed from the promised land. Seems to me like God is trying to tell his people, yes, I've brought discipline, but I'm not done with you yet. Yes, you have been unfaithful to the covenant. Yes, I've made good on my word, but I still love you. I still have a plan and I'm still in charge of human history. So, what we're trying to see today is how do we get wisdom to deal with the chaos of life, 
So we can have some power, we can have some control, and we're going to see the central point of this passage today is this. True wisdom and true power come from God alone. That's it. And I'll show you exactly where it is in the text. It's not hard to see. Let's pick it up in verse one, all the way back at the beginning of chapter two. So in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, really quick note, if you care about things like second year and chronology, and you're like, wait a minute, I thought Daniel and his friends were trained for three years. How is this story happening in the second year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign? Well, happy Labor Day weekend. I have a present for you. It's a PDF. It's up on the website. It's all sorts of nerdy stuff. Enjoy it. Read it. Love it. Share it. Okay. It's a bunch of commentaries talking about how we deal with the chronology of the book of Daniel. I'll just say that and move on. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him like insomnia. Anybody ever had dreams that left you troubled and without sleep? Now, the king commanded that the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. All of these terms, they're a little bit overlapping. It's hard to know with uh, precision and specificity what their different roles are. The one thing we know for sure is the Chaldeans is a specific tribe in Babylon that was given kind of the role of being the leading wise men. They would study dream interpretations. They would study the movement of the stars. And this tribe kind of eventually becomes less of an ethnic designation. It becomes more of a, like a role and a function. So the Chaldeans, they're all summoned to tell the king his dream. And so they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, Live forever. That's called buttering him up. Tell your servants the dream and we will, will show you the interpretation. By the way, that idea of speaking in Aramaic when it said that, uh, that is where we don't see it in our English translations, but in the original writings, it has been written in the language of Hebrew up to that point, And now it switches to Aramaic. We're eventually going to get back to Hebrew, but this middle section is all in Aramaic, which is the, the lingua franca of the day. It's the language that the whole ancient Near Eastern world spoke. It's the language that Babylon would have spoken as they conquered the whole world. I don't exactly know. There's a lot of different theories from different scholars why it's Hebrew and Aramaic. Did we lose manuscripts and have to stitch it all together? I think there's kind of something interesting in the idea that the parts that are written in Hebrew are for the children of God to hear, and the parts that are written in Aramaic are for the whole world to hear. Interesting thought. I don't know. Take it for what it's worth. But they said in Aramaic, and then the text switches to Aramaic. O king, live forever. Again, tell your servants a dream. We'll show them interpretation. And he said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, well, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. No pressure. That actually sounds like some Football coaches, actually, as we get into football season, you don't make the play. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, uh, let the king tell his servants the dream. And then we'll tell you what the interpretation is. Again, they've got these manuals. You tell us what you dreamed about. If it's a bear, if it's a statue, if it's this or that, then we can interpret. But we can't just tell you what you dreamed. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. I already told you what it is. Rip limb from limb, tear your houses down. Remember that part? You've all agreed, you've all conspired to speak lying and corrupt words before me until this time changes, until the season moves on. You're just stalling and you're hoping that things get better and you're just conspiring together and I ain't standing for it. Therefore, tell me the dream, and that's what's going to let me know that your interpretation is actually true. You guys see in this? He's like, I don't want to put up with any of your nonsense. I want something really secure. Now, Nebuchadnezzar is early in his reign here. And we're going to see over the coming chapters that he becomes more and more unhinged. But do you see a little bit of paranoia here? Do you see a little bit of, like, I, I'm, I'm new in this role of, you know, ruling the world, and I'm getting a little bit spastic here, and I have this dream that stressed me out, and I want to know, is my kingdom secure? Is my rule going to be secure? And so I don't want any of your best guesses. I really want to know. 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked anything like this from any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asked is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. That's an interesting line, is it not? Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> How are you feeling today? Well, I'm, I'm angry, but I'm also very furious. Like, I'm, I'm both somehow. <laughs> it's kind of a, a rough way to translate the Hebrew of like, he's really mad. He's so mad that he commands all of the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. Not just these guys before him who can't interpret his dream. Not only can they not interpret his dream, they can't even tell him the dream. He says, I want all of them killed. I want all of them put to death. Verse 13, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. They're part of the wise men, whether they're still early in their training in school or they've graduated and they're just low men on the totem pole. They're not there with the king. They're somewhere else, but the soldiers are going out to kill him. So then Daniel replied with, listen to these words, I love it, prudence and discretion to Arioch. See, Daniel's a man of wisdom, is he not? And Daniel's a man who, who not only is being trained in the way of the Chaldeans, but Daniel's a man who knows the scriptures of his people, the Israelites. Daniel's a man who would have read the Proverbs of Solomon and, and maybe even called to mind verses like, a soft answer turns away wrath. So Daniel Declare, he replies with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, he says, why is this decree so urgent? And so Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in, here, listen to his response. And he requested that the king appoint him a time so he might show the interpretation to the king. Do you guys remember last week when it was the, the crisis over the food? And he goes and he says, well, here, give us 10 days and, and we'll eat only vegetables and drink only water and then you can test us. And here he replies with discretion and prudence to this captain of the guard. Daniel's a man of practical wisdom. But then Daniel went into his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. I want to push pause for a brief moment here. Daniel is a man of great prudence and practical wisdom, is he not? But Daniel is also a man who knows that prudence and practical wisdom has a limit. It only can go so far. Here in, in this matter, he is able to use prudence and practical wisdom to buy him some time so that he and his friends may hit their faces before the God of heaven and plead for mercy in a situation that is far beyond their power and far beyond their control. And I'll say this, in my time as a Christian, even in my time as a pastor, I've been a, a part of a handful of different churches and I've known lots of different Christians. It breaks my heart and it saddens me when I see Christians pit practical wisdom and deep dependence upon a supernatural God against each other. I have known Christians who, boy, they pray. They love the Lord. They pray. They trust that God can move mountains. He can do miracles. But at times I've known it seems like they just check their brains at the door. Oh, I know that the Lord will deliver me from this problem. Like, well, you might not have gotten yourself into this problem if you'd have been a little bit smarter on the front end. On the other hand, I have known Christians that very practical, very wise, very cautious, very discerning, but it's almost like they treat relationship with the supernatural God of the universe like a pre-flight checklist. If I just check the tires, make sure they're inflated, make sure there's fuel, make sure I do all this stuff, then life will just fly smoothly. And it's almost like they forgot that we serve a supernatural God, a revealer of mysteries, the God of heaven and earth. Friends, my deep desire for Sound City Bible Church is that we would not be an either or, we would be a both and type of church. Amen? 
I actually was talking with, with one friend in between the, the two services. And he's like, you know, I'm one of those things and my wife is the other one of those things. So together we're, we almost got it balanced out. We need people with different leanings, with different giftings. But, but as a church community, we, the elders, felt like, you know what? We probably trend more in the direction of pragmatic and practical and wisdom and, and cautious. And God wants to grow us in the area of deep, trusting, abiding prayer. Which is why we said that 2019 is focused on the subject of prayer. It's why we have had various prayer meetings throughout the year. We're going to have another one in October. We'll tell you more about that coming up later. It's why we started a prayer team that's available after every single service so that we can not just live our lives with practical wisdom, which is good and wonderful and from God, but there are some situations that we need the supernatural God of the universe to move his sovereign hand. Okay, that was side point free of charge. Let's keep going. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. I don't know if that's a dream or something different than a dream. A vision of the night sounds like a dream to me, but God is the one who reveals it. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong what? Wisdom and might. Power. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Both wisdom and knowledge come from God. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, but the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, not any of these gods of Babylon, not Marduk or Eku or any of these other ones. It's, it's you, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I give thanks and praise for you have given me, what is it? Wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you for have made, you have made known to us the king's matter. Wendy Witter is a scholar. Actually, she lives in Washington state and she wrote in her commentary this. She said, Daniel's magnificent doxology summarizes the primary message of chapter two. God alone has wisdom and power. And both are his to give and take. In fact, Daniel's words capture the most important message of the entire book, a message that began in Daniel 1-2 when God delivered Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Throughout the book, God will raise up kings, he will take them down, he will confound the wise and give wisdom and discernment to his faithful servants. He will share his wisdom, power, dominion, and even glory with humans, and he will call them to account for what they do with it. But his kingdom alone is eternal, and to him alone belong power, dominion, and glory. So therefore, Daniel goes to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to kill all the wise men of Babylon. And he said, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. So then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. Like, hurry up. He is angry and very mad. Like he's both. Let's go. And he said to him, I found I found, that's a little bit taken credit. Daniel came to him. I have found among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. So the king declares to Daniel, whose Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What's, what's going to come ahead? What's going to happen here in the future? Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. He's stalling. He's like, I'm going to tell you. And then he keeps talking. <laughs> he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. I find that just particularly funny. Maybe it's only me, but he's like, king, here's the dream. And the king's like, yeah. And he's like waiting with bated breath. And he's like, it's actually, I just want to tell you a little bit more about my God because it's not me. It's him who's made this known. Verse 31. Here's the dream. You saw, O king, a great 
image, a great icon, like a statue. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. Now the head of this image was fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver, its middle, excuse me, and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now I'm no metallurgist or whatever, but it sounds a little bit unstable to have the base of the feet mixed, especially with something as brittle as clay. And as you looked, a stone, just a stone, was cut out uh, by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. We don't uh, necessarily, you know, beat grain and see the chaff float away, but like, what about those little dandelion seeds that you see blowing away in the wind? He's like, it took iron and bronze and silver and gold and just made it like the Avengers at the end of Infinity War. Like just, sorry, that was, for, that was for someone here. Became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But that stone, the stone that struck the image, became a great mountain. It's like this rock starts to grow and turns into a mountain. And it filled, not just any mountain, it filled the whole earth. That's a big mountain. Now, this was your dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, listen to how he speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. You're the the king of kings. He's not buttering him up. He's, he's speaking truthfully. Nebuchadnezzar has the most power of any human being on planet earth at this time. The king over other kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man. So you rule over people. You rule over the beasts of the field. You even rule over the birds of the heavens as if you could do that. Making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now, do you think Nebuchadnezzar liked that part? Yeah, that's right, I am the head of gold. Keep going, Daniel. But another kingdom inferior to you, Nebuchadnezzar's like, yep, keep going, inferior to you, shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom Strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. Not precious as much as it is just hard. And you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It shall be a divided kingdom, because some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix one with another in marriage. You guys know how in ancient politics they would often have one person from one kingdom marry someone from another kingdom to try to strengthen their allegiances? But if you've ever read history, you know that those often go real bad and doesn't work out. That's what he's saying here. Marriage and they're going to try to be strong, but it's going to be mixed. It's going to make it brittle. They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a different kingdom. It's a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God 
has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation sure. And Daniel drops the microphone. Now, I know you're probably wondering, what are those four kingdoms? You have to come back in October. I'll tell you then. Okay, here's the deal. (laughs) There is a lot, a lot of things written about what is the historical progression that's outlined here? And I will come back to this later, I promise you, because this is all coming back again in chapter seven, chapter eight. Some people think it's, you know, it's uh, Babylon followed by the Medes, followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks. Some think it's Babylon by the medio persian Empire mixed together, followed by the Greeks, followed by the Romans. Others think that it is the four kings in the book of Daniel from, from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar to, to Cyrus to Darius. Come back in October. I want to stay with the theological interpretation of what Daniel is saying to Nebuchadnezzar here for today. I think we can see a couple things very clearly. The first thing is this. Nebuchadnezzar has power, but it's very fragile. There is literally no one on planet earth who has more power than Nebuchadnezzar. He speaks a word and all the wise men are going to be put to death. You might look at politicians and rulers today and say they've got too much power and you might be right. In fact, you probably are right. They don't have as much power as Nebuchadnezzar has. And in fact, Daniel even tells him that this power is given to you by God. You have dominion, you have might, you have glory. You have power over not only humans, but animals and birds. He has a lot of power, but it is very fragile. It is very fleeting. Not only will your kingdom of gold not last, but another kingdom's coming after you and another kingdom and another kingdom and the power all comes from God in the first place. And when the time comes, he's going to smash all those kingdoms to pieces and set up a kingdom that cannot be smashed. So what power do you look around and see that people have? Think of the most powerful person you know, the, the highest up person at your work, the highest up person in local politics or national politics, the richest person that you personally know or the richest person you could think of. Whatever power they have, and it might be great, it's still very fragile because it is held by God in ultimate. Number two, we see that the pattern of earthly kingdoms is to deteriorate and to decline. Did you notice the gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay? That's intentional. This isn't just like, oh, is that the Olympics? Is that where that comes from? Like, no, this is like the ancient Near Eastern world. Gold is the most valuable. Silver is the next. And then bronze. And then iron is useful, but not particularly valuable. And then clay is more or less worthless. What it shows is that there is, in the history of the world, we can expect a pattern of decline and deterioration. Now, we who are hearing this, we are children of the enlightenment, the age of reason, the age of science, the age of exploration, where we have been taught to expect that the world should just get better and better and better and better and better until we usher in basically paradise on earth. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, you go read some of the guys like around the time of our founding fathers. Go read the philosophers that were writing at that time. Like, it's not, I'm not exaggerating when I say that they talk about ushering in paradise on earth. I think that a lot of the political angst that we see at play in our country right now is people trying to reckon with the fact that we've been sold a bill of goods that's just not really true. We have been taught, we've been, we've been indoctrinated to believe by enlightenment thinking that if we could just get all the right laws passed, all the right politicians in place, we should be able to expect paradise on earth. But the reality is that humanity is far more broken than that. And that not only God's word, but just the pattern of history shows us that we ought to expect a deterioration and decline. So we have hope in a big God. We have hope in 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 an amazing gospel. I'm gonna get to that in a moment here, but I just, a little bit of realism. We shouldn't be shocked when we see the kingdoms of this world go from bad to worse. It's just kind of the way of the world. It's what all, however many, you know, thousands of years of human history show us that over time things deteriorate and things decline. But number three, and most important, we see that God is in the business of setting up a kingdom. And his kingdom begins, hum- begins humbly. I like it, it says it's, it's just a rock. It's just a stone. But this stone surprisingly smashes the statue to bits, and then it grows into a mountain that fills the whole world. 
I wonder if when Daniel received this interpretation, I wonder if he thought of the words of the prophet Isaiah from about a hundred years earlier, when, when Isaiah started prophesying about a Messiah coming. And in these last days, Isaiah said, when the Messiah comes, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of what God? The God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Here is one of the children of Jacob telling the ruler of all of the nations of the earth about the mountain of the Lord being established. In the age of the Messiah, Isaiah tells us, God's going to start drawing all sorts of people to himself. And you won't be able to miss this rock that turns into a mountain. Which leads us, friends, to Jesus. Because we see that several centuries later, Jesus appears on the scene and he starts talking about the kingdom of God. He starts using this language of the kingdom of God and he says, you know, the kingdom of God is going to start small and it's going to grow. You think of different parables that Jesus told? He talks about, you know, like a, like a little tiny seed that grows into a giant tree. He talks about a little bit of yeast that goes into the bread and the dough and it, it fills the whole thing. Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God in the same sort of way as Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Start small, doesn't look very impressive, but it's going to grow into something that brings blessing to not just the children of Jacob, but all the nations of the earth. And Jesus starts talking about his teaching. Remember that, that famous parable where he says that my teaching is like a rock. And if you build your life on the rock, it's like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And when the storms of life come, when you feel powerless, when you feel like everything is chaotic, if your life is built on me, the rock, and my teaching, well, you're going to be able to stand firm. Jesus' followers, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul come along later and said, Jesus himself is the rock. He is the rock that establishes the kingdom. You can see in 1 Peter 2 where Peter says that Jesus is a a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. And the apostle Paul uses this language that comes from the Psalms that says that Jesus is this stone that's been placed in Jerusalem and people trip over it, but he is, he's, he's the cornerstone of the whole building and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Friends, I believe that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dreams a vision of the coming of Jesus Christ, the one who would establish the kingdom of God on earth. And though it starts small, it grows and grows and grows. Can you think about how many nations have come and gone, how many empires have come and gone in the 2,000 years since Jesus came on the scene and yet his kingdom stands firm? And so ultimately what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar is that you want wisdom, you want power, you should know my God. And friends, I stand before you with the same message. You want wisdom? You want power? You want to be able to deal with the, the chaos of life, your own personal life, as well as the, the chaos of life in the larger world? You need to go to Jesus. Jesus lived a life of perfect wisdom. He taught God's true wisdom. And Jesus demonstrated God's power through his miracles, through, through raising Lazarus from the dead, through all the things that he did. But ultimately, Jesus shows us the wisdom of God in the cross that he died and he laid down his life for us. What looks like foolishness to the world. What kind of Messiah dies on a cross? Jesus does because that's where our sins are forgiven. That's where we find our atonement. That's where we find our peace with God. And Jesus demonstrates his power by not staying dead. Friends, I don't know if you know this, but Christ is risen and he's alive forevermore. And now if you want to know true wisdom and you want to experience a true sense of power or strength or might in the world, it's not found on sports blogs. It's not found in political talk radio. It's not found in any of your health food blogs that you can read. It's found in Jesus Christ above all. Jesus is The rock. Kingdoms come. Kingdoms go. Rulers have power. Jesus has all power. End of the story, verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid 
homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, truly, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're missing a verse here where Daniel says, no, 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 don't do that. I don't know. <laughs> File that under things I want to know about. There's a lot of those in the book of Daniel. I hope somebody's keeping a list because there's a lot of things I want to know. Did Daniel let an offering and incense be burned to him? Did he get up, king? We don't know. The king said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you. You did it. You did it. You were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. It's like a regional governor and chief prefect over all the wise men. Oh, Daniel's now in charge of the Chaldeans and the wise men. Daniel made a request to the king and the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's his three friends. That's their Babylonian names over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. We'll talk more about Meshach and those guys next week with the fiery furnace. Here's what a Presbyterian scholar and commentator Chun Long Xiao says. He says, the text is silent about Daniel's response. I love this. The account simply depicts Nebuchadnezzar, who is called the king of kings, now fallen with his face upon the ground prostrate before the lowly Jewish captive, the prediction of the collapse of the mighty statue of kingship by a mere stone is foreshadowed and even set in motion in this event for the head of gold is now in fact on the ground. Couple quick thoughts in closing. What do we do with this story? First and foremost, I want to encourage you to seek your wisdom from Christ. Uh, I, I will say this, I don't encounter it often, but if, if, if you are someone who is drawn to what the Bible would call divination, if you're someone who reads horoscopes and does astrology or tea leaves or those things, uh, I'm pleading with you to stop. That is, that is sinful before God and is not how God wants to communicate to you. God is communicating to us through his word constantly night and day. You don't need the abstract and the mysterious and the superstition. Go to God in his word. The people of God from the ancient Israel to us as followers of Jesus, the people of God are always pointed away from superstition and to the direct communication of our God. And he has communicated to us most directly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that is good news. Amen. But even apart from divination, some of you are are more just drawn to distraction. Look, I'm picking on sports blogs and health blogs and political talks. I'm not saying that those things are wrong in and of themselves to read those things or to, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying, but I do think it is wrong to spend way more of your time consulting that type of wisdom than the wisdom of the word of God that he's given to us. So evaluate your priorities and seek wisdom from Christ. Number two, I want to encourage you to steward your power well. None of us are Nebuchadnezzar. Thank the Lord, okay? Okay. But we do have power. Some of you are bosses, managers, teachers. Some of you are elders in the church, deacons in the church. Some of you sit on city councils. Some of you are bosses. Whatever you might be, you have some power. You have some authority. Remember where it comes from and steward it well. Number three, I want to encourage all of you to embrace both wisdom and prayer. Which way do you trend? Which way do you lean? Embrace the other side. Make sure you have a friend, people in your life, in your community who can encourage you in that direction. And may we, Sound City Bible Church, become people who are wise in in practical ways, but deeply dependent upon a supernatural God who's a revealer of mysteries. And lastly, I want you to remember in the chaos and the craziness of life, remember who's really in charge. If you run up against someone in power, if you think about rulers of this earth who seem to use their power for wicked purposes, Number one, pray for them. And number two, remember that God will hold them accountable. And when you are in Christ, when you are in Christ, you are united with the one who has all knowledge, all information, all wisdom, and all power. You're going to be okay. I can't guarantee you that things in your life are going to be smooth. I can't guarantee you. In fact, I can guarantee you there will be trials and tribulations. 
but I can also guarantee you that the ultimate outcome is secure and one day we will worship on the mountain of the Lord face to face with Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for your word that is secure. God, would you forgive us of those times when we trust in other things above and beyond you? God, would you help us to put those things in their right place and in their right priority? God, would you help us to be people who rely not just on practical wisdom, but on supernatural wisdom that comes only from you? And Lord Jesus, now as we come to the table, as we commemorate and celebrate and reflect upon your broken body and your shed blood for us, God, I ask and I pray that you would strengthen us to live faithfully to you as exiles until the day that you return and we see you face to face. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. Pastor Jamin. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Aaron. As we uh, transition to communion, I'm going I'm to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we're so thankful as we sit here and reflect, Father. Thankful that you sent Jesus, Father. Jesus who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live And yet he died the death that we deserved, Father. And and reflecting on that and and the message that we just heard, Father, help convict each and every one of us. When we didn't, when we put our faith and trust in the wrong things, when we put our security and our future, when when we think that it lies in this world and not of Jesus, please forgive us. Please help us put our trust in Jesus, who is the rock, Jesus' teachings, which is based on, which is the rock Jesus himself is the rock father help us help convict us when we don't when we forget that a king's power is fragile that earthly kingdoms deteriorate and decline father help remind us that god's kingdom begins humbly and yet lasts forever father help us feel the gravity when we stray of that sin father and also we want to thank you that we're forgiven and want to celebrate that, Father, and we get to celebrate that because of what you've done for us, Father, that we get to do that. Amen. You can now take this time. You should have received the elements when you came in. You can take, pray with each other, take the elements, and then after, stand and celebrate with us.